electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Great to see you. I'm Tyler Matheson in this hour for Kelly Evans. And here's what's ahead. Jobless claims fell below a million for the first time since mid-March. But for those still unemployed, more stimulus can't come soon enough. But what if it never comes? We will take a look at the potential fallout for the consumer and the markets. Plus, a closer look at one healthcare stock that is up 90% so far this year. The CEO will join us with what's working and what's next for his company. And home improvement stocks keep nailing new highs. Apple may be muscling in on Peloton. And America runs on cereal. That's all ahead in rapid fire. But we begin today with the markets and Dom Chu, who has the numbers. Hi, Dom. Caffeinated cereal. I know, I know we'll be talking about that a little bit later on. Anyway, thank you very much, Tyler. Take a look at what's happening with the markets right now. It is mixed and very modestly so. So again, the Dow Industrial is down by just about one-tenth of one percent, 20 points. One stock in particular, one of the main drivers of that downside. We'll talk about that in a second. But the S&P 500, now again, right above its closing record high. Remember, 33.93 is what it needs to get to be the intraday record high. And the Nasdaq doing some real outperformance, again, reversing course from the near term, now outperforming once again. To that point, check out what's happening with the sectors, because the two sectors that we most closely associate with the Nasdaq composite are technology and communication services. Both of those sectors, as you can see here, posting outperforming moves over the S&P 500. Meanwhile, a source of strength near term banks under pressure today and energy still in focus under pressure down about one percent. And we mentioned that key driver for the Dow. It is Cisco Systems, the big computer networking equipment company. The worst performing stock in the Dow Industrial is now down 11 percent right now. That's taken away pretty much 35 to 40 points from the Dow. So, again, the Dow would actually be positive if not for Cisco on some disappointing earnings reports. So watch those shares of Cisco. A far cry on technology, Tyler, from the Apples and other ones out there. Cisco, an old world name that seems to be trying to find its way right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. Back over to you. When Cisco becomes old world, it tells me how long I've been around this game. Dom Chu, thanks very much. Uh, Let's take a closer look at that weekly jobless number and where things stand on the road to recovery. For that, we go to Steve Leisman. Hi, Steve. Good afternoon, Tyler. A welcome beat and a welcome drop in jobless claims to a still very high and unwelcome level. Claims fell by 228,000 to 963,000, as Tyler said. First time we've been below a million since mid-March and far better than the estimate on the street. Continuing claims also dropping even more by 604,000 to 15.4 million. Now, we have to count a separate federal unemployment program. It's called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, for which the data is a week or two older. It saw a decline of 2.2 million to 10.7 million. But you got to add it all together. And while claims for benefits are well off their highs and moving in the right direction, some 28 million Americans still receiving benefits. Some economists, however, they seized on the decline and the momentum. Others focused on the level over at City. Uh, Andrew Hollenhorst writes, this keeps us confident that the rehiring rebound will extend into August. 
but there's still concern over the economy with federal claims benefits having expired and unknown effects from that recent surge we had in the virus uh, in certain parts of the country. JP Morgan has uh, begun using its daily credit card data to track spending by the level of unemployment claims by state. Economist Jesse Edgren said it's likely too early to see any impact from the end of that $600 benefit, but you can see that spending is pretty much flat or the rebound is flat. Economists are concerned that for the millions of unemployed Americans and for the broader economy, some kind of check, Tyler, needs to be in the mail, either a bigger government benefit check or a paycheck. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Steve Leisman for us today. Uh, thank you very much. I, but one report does not make a trend, of course, and stimulus bill talks have stalled as Republicans and Democrats seem not to be able to reach a deal. Despite that, National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow told CNBC earlier today that he is still optimistic. There's still a lot of hardship out there. I get that. We have much, much more work to do. But I will say things seem to be trending in the right direction. And, you know, lots and lots of, uh, we could talk about this, different sectors are showing significant recoveries, uh, even despite the hotspot breakouts. And again, we lost some ground, uh, things like restaurants and small business, but not, not too bad. So I'm, I'm relatively optimistic on this story. So should investors also be optimistic about this recovery that we seem to be in? With us now, Daryl Cronk, Chief Investment Officer for Wealth and Investment Management at Wells Fargo. Bryce Doty is Senior Portfolio Manager at SIT Investment Associates. And Anne Elizabeth Conkle is an economist at the Indeed Hiring Lab. Bryce, let me begin with you. Uh, I guess the fact that the uh, unemployment claims numbers dip below a million is cause for some happiness. But it's still 900,000 plus. And the old rule of thumb was that anything above 400,000 in a week was bad news, signs of a recession. This is double that. Right. It's certainly a, a sign of the times when you're actually excited about only 900,000 people filing for unemployment. It's, uh, you know, it's still a huge number. I like the trend. But, but it's very worrisome when you think that there may not be an extension of unemployment benefits with how many people are still unemployed. And yet, you know, we, we find that we are optimistic on bonds and a lot, of, uh, a lot of the stock market. So it's a really strange message. You sound crazy when you tell clients that we're really concerned about the economic fallout with uh, claims continuing to be so high and so many people unemployed while simultaneously the Fed is really supporting corporate bonds. And at some point between now and year end, you're going to you're going to get this darkest before the dawn type of moment where there might be another wave with schools reopen just before vaccines start coming online. And that that's going to create quite a huge rotation, I think, in the stock market. So there's still some upside there as well. But you sound you sound mm -hmm. a little crazy, though, when you're telling clients the, the mixed message about the economy versus uh, the financial markets. And Elizabeth, why don't you react to uh, what Bryce just said? But also, I'd like to ask you about how uh, how concerned you are that there may be another wave of unemployment coming sometime this fall as perhaps. Uh, restaurants that have opened, small businesses that have opened, uh, either retreat, fold up, or are faced with a, another wave of virus? Yeah, so it is a good sign that the numbers are falling. Um, it, a particular bright spot is that for the non-seasonally adjusted claims, this is the fourth week in a row of this downward trend. But again, as um, has been said up to this point, 
the numbers are still extremely high. Um, so it is really just another sign um, that there is recovery, but there is a very long road ahead. Um, the impact on the entire economy, as well as the possibility of, you know, a second wave, um, is right now there are there are more reports of people struggling to pay their bills, purchase medicine, and so the absence um, of this additional money is a tremendous negative impact mm-hmm. on their overall economic well-being, I, I um, and it is it is going to have a very negative negative impact on consumer spending. I want to come back and ask you after we take a quick little inter, inter, intermission here to go to Rick Santelli with the uh, 30-year bond auction. I want to ask you whether you think, Anne Elizabeth, whether the economy is still in recession. Let's go to Rick for a second. Rick? Tyler, the last of $112 billion in supply was a record amount, $26 billion, 30-year bonds, and it was by far the worst auction of the three. The grade I gave it was D minus, dog minus, uh, 146. So 1406, 1.406 is the yield at the auction. The when issued market was trading around 138. Higher yield, lower price, and all the metrics were just weak. If you look at bid to cover at 2.14, that was the weakest since July of 19. Uh, indirects at just under 60, the weakest since November of 19. Dealers take over 28%, the most since July of 19. So no matter which way you look at this on the actual pricing of the low price, the high yield, or all the given metrics, it was a weak auction. And I think part of this is there seems to be a new thought out there that long-dated treasuries may see a bit more selling pushing rates up. Back to you, Tyler. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Let me bring back our panel and, and turn to Daryl uh, and get your reaction to that bond auction there, uh, among, among other things. And I guess the among other things would be this. How can the stock market be so good when the economy isn't? Yeah, good afternoon, Tyler. It's a great question. We get that question all the time. So I would say the key is when you start to break down the stock market, so if you just took Infotech at 27% as a sector exposure, plus comm services at 11%, plus the e-commerce sections of consumer discretionary and some of the other gig sectors, you're quickly well over 50% of the stock market is e-commerce or some type of tech-related work-from-home, stay-at-home type of uh, of uh, exposure. And so that's very different than Main Street and what we see on some of the actual uh, up and down labor market and the exposure in the broad economy. So I think it is a difference. Investors have to understand that difference, how to play it in their portfolios. And Elizabeth, I do want to come back to you and ask you whether you, in light of the the jobless claims numbers today, in light of unemployment at above 10 percent, is this economy in recovery or is it still in recession? So I believe the economy is still in recovery, uh, or in, in recession and recovery kind of at the same time, but the recovery is slowing. And we're seeing this trend um, in all the data as well as in on um, Indeed.com. We track the overall job posting trend, um, which is in its 14th week of improvement, but this past week saw the smallest improvement since it started turning around in May. Um, so kind of, kind of both, that it is, we are in recession right now, but there is that recovery, but it is losing steam, which is particularly concerning. Bryce, I'm not sure I understood correctly, and, and forgive me if I, if, I, if I did misunderstand. 
I thought you were making sort of two cheers for bonds here. Uh, and I wonder what you think about bonds, uh, given the fact that if you look at short-term treasuries, they're basically cash, uh, and you don't earn much on them. Uh, and if you look at what Rick just said, uh, it might be some tough time for long-dated bonds if interest rates go up. And, oh, by the way, if I buy a 30-year treasury right now, I'm getting paid a whopping one point, what was it, 4% for 30 years? I don't want that. I, right. I think it's, it's uh, two different markets. It's the corporate and credit bond market where you can still get yield and the Fed is buying a ton of those bonds and there's still some upside. And then you have the treasury market that is, uh, that is terrible. I mean, you just said it. there's almost no yield there, plenty of volatility. And I think this 30-year auction, the way I read that is by, by it being poor, you know, and the yield being higher than people expected, is that's kind of a, a hope trade or a hope or indicator of, of hope by investors that, hey, maybe, maybe there will be a vaccine sooner than we thought. Maybe we'll get out of this uh, pandemic a little sooner than we thought, and the Fed isn't going to be suppressing those long 30-year treasury rates as much as we might expect. But if that's the case, if there is some good news on the vaccine front and the economy is going to benefit from that, corporate bonds are still going to do well. So uh, I, I appreciate you coming back to me because it's really the, the credit risk that we're positive on right. and not so much on the, the government treasury yield. There's, uh, they're, they're clearly uh, going to be moving in opposite directions oftentimes. Gentlemen and lady, uh, alas, we have to leave it there. I thank you for your time. Daryl Cronk, Bryce Doty, and Ann Elizabeth Conkle. Thanks a lot. See you again soon. Well, this healthcare stock is up almost 180% in one year and up 90% so far this year. We will tell you the name when the CEO joins us next to tell us what's been driving the gains. Plus, Amazon's contract delivery business has been booming. So why is the company cutting more than 1,000 jobs in that area? We have the details on that ahead. The exchange returns in two minutes. But wait, there's more. The Exchange is also a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. You're probably familiar with most of the high-flying names in the NASDAQ 100, Tesla, Moderna, DocuSign, NVIDIA, among others. They're among the top performers over the past year. But here's one under-the-radar name you may not have heard of, Dexcom. It's not a comms company, folks. It's a company that is innovating in diabetes management with continuous glucose monitoring systems. In 2020 alone, Dexcom's stock has nearly doubled as telemedicine trends accelerate through the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us now is the CEO of Dexcom, Kevin Sayer. Mr. Sayer, welcome. It's nice to have you with us. 
Oh, it's good to be on the show. Thank you for having me. We're delighted. And your stock, I should point out, is, I believe, the fifth best performing stock in the NASDAQ 100 over a one-year basis. So congratulations on that. How does your device work exactly? Is it, one, is it an implantable device, or does it, is it uh, attached to the skin in some way and then connect to a smartwatch? Give us the quick and dirty on it. I can give you the quick and dirty. Uh, a small a sensor, a small wire about the width of a human hair is inserted just under your skin. And that's inserted with a needle. The needle's retracted very quickly. And it's attached to a base. That base remains on your skin. And then a transmitter is placed in there. And that transmitter takes an electrochemical signal from that sensor, turns it into an estimated glucose value, and then sends that value directly to a phone. And the thing that is so fascinating about this company and this technology is we have every engineer of every kind to develop this, electrical engineers, software engineers, mechanical engineers, everywhere across the board to give this technology to patients. Then what happens with that glucose value when it goes to the phone, a patient can look at their phone and see where their blood sugar levels are, how fast they're trending up or how fast they're trending down. They get alerts or alarms. And on top of that, they can connect with mm -hmm. others who might be concerned about their condition and other people can follow them. You could send that to a, to a, a medical practitioner, to a hospital, I gather, and so forth. Just, just to close the loop, how big is the external device? Is it the size of a what? The current device is a little, probably a little bigger than a quarter on your skin. It's not very big. And, it, and our device has a 10-day life, so you put it on one site for 10 days. You take it off and then put another one on uh, 10 days after that so you don't have it all, all the time. Do you, do you bathe with it? Do you bathe with it or not? Oh, yeah. You bathe, shower. You, you, we have uh, – there are amazing stories of athletes who have run marathons. One wow. athlete who spoke to our Very cool. company did seven marathons on seven continents in seven days wearing his Dexcom. So, since so things we're, of that nature happen all the time. Since we're working with, a, with an egg timer here, let me ask you two questions at once. Uh, what has been the uptake among insurers to cover or reimburse for this for this medical device? Uh, and and number two, how has COVID changed your business and the uptake of this device? I'll start with the first one. Access through the insurance companies is is very widespread now. We're covered by almost every major plan. We have Medicare coverage for Medicare patients, and we're covered in most of the Medicaid environment as well. With respect to the COVID environment, uh, there has been an increased uptake, as you can see by our financial results. I think what we've learned most interesting here is the effect of our device on telemedicine, where patients can't go to the clinic because our device goes to the phone and to the cloud. They can have a session with their physician right at home because the doctor has the information right in front of them. Add to that, we got a, uh, an emergency exemption from the FDA to where our product could be used in the hospitals as you know, diabetes and COVID are very much comorbidities. Patients in the hospitals who've used the technology have seen significant decreases on the healthcare professionals, the PP&E, time they have to spend with the patients, better glucose outcomes, and admission, you know, they get to leave the hospital much faster. So COVID, while it's hard and it's been difficult, has really validated the importance of our technology. Dexcom is the company. What is the name of the device that we're talking about here? We call our current one our G6 technology. We're not very innovative on the names. It's our sixth generation, and the next one will be G7. So the Dexcom G6, uh, you can read about it and see it on our website and learn all about it. Sounds like a private jet.
Sounds fantastic. Thanks very much. <laughs> Kevin Sayer, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. You bet. Have a great day. You too. And coming up, in the private, is the private sector the solution to solving the COVID testing crisis? We'll bring you the story of several biotech companies that have teamed up to tackle that problem. Plus, home improvement stocks keep hitting new highs and there's no sign of stopping them. We will take a look at some of the winners in that trade. The exchange is back in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back, everybody. Let's check in with Seema Modi for a CNBC News update. Hi, Seema. Hi, Tyler. That's right. I'm Seema Modi, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Starting in Europe, Mercedes-Benz owner Daimler will pay more than $2 billion to settle claims with several U.S. authorities and a class action lawsuit related to the emission control systems of roughly 250,000 diesel passenger vehicles. Coronavirus cases in France hitting another post-lockdown high for a second straight day. More than 2,600 confirmed cases were reported over the past 24 hours. The European Commission has reached a deal with Johnson & Johnson to secure 200 million doses of its COVID-19 vaccine candidate, making the treatment available for purchase to all EU member nations. The World Health Organization downplaying the threat of contracting COVID-19 from food packaging after health officials from three Chinese cities detected the coronavirus on the surfaces of some imported frozen food products. The Global Health Agency says there is no evidence the food chain is participating in transmission of the virus. Still a scary thought there. That's your CNBC News update at this hour. Tyler, back to you. All right, Seema, thanks. And we'll see you again on Rapid Fire. So get yourself ready. <laughs> so ready. All right, let's turn to some good news on the COVID front, specifically on testing, and Meg Terrell has a closer look at a group of biotech companies banding together to tackle the crisis. While COVID-19 takes an ever larger toll on mortality in the U.S., heart disease is still the country's number one killer. Biotech company Verve Therapeutics aims to help. We're developing a gene editing medicine to treat heart attack. So really think a one and done for cardiovascular disease, a one-time treatment permanent lowering of cholesterol after a heart attack. But to do that work, Verve's employees have to be in its labs. COVID-19 makes that complicated. Our work involves work in cells and 
animal models, the kind of work that you can't do at home. With as many as 40 percent of people with the coronavirus showing no symptoms, Verve CEO Saker Catharason knew that surveillance testing was a key to keeping his employees safe. But it wasn't immediately clear when the pandemic hit how to access that testing. So got together with a couple of CEOs, biotech CEOs in the area, and we developed the infrastructure. The group partnered with the Broad Institute, a nonprofit just around the corner in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's one of the largest genome research centers in the world. It had started running COVID tests in late March, mainly for hospitals and then nursing homes. We ramped from around 1,000 tests a day to 10,000, and right now we have the instrumentation in place for around 35,000 tests per day. It also engaged Color, a Bay Area health technology company, to operate and streamline the testing process. From the moment somebody registers for a test or books a testing appointment to the moment that they get results back, that entire process is digital and is streamlined and is integrated fully. The consortium now includes 51 biotech companies. Employees get tested in a set of trailers provided by Alexandria Real Estate, the biggest landlord to the biotechnology industry. Results are returned in an average of 12 hours. Verve's employees get tested once a week. Each test costs $80. Katharison says it's an expense that has been well worth it. I can't think of a better use of resources than um, making the employees' uh, work environment as safe as possible. Meg joins me now. Meg, how scalable is this? That's a great question, Tyler. Of course, these are biotechnology companies. They're private companies with investor funding. And this is not cheap. You know, $80 a test, 40 employees per week. That's more than $3,000 a week. Uh, but uh, Katharison tells me that he does expect that the price is going to come down. Uh, new technologies will help. It'll get streamlined by being able to self-administer the, the test collection, at least. Uh, so that should help. And, you know, it's a matter of figuring out the logistics to make these kinds of things work. All right, Meg, thank you very much. Meg Terrell reporting. So is the private sector the key to solving the testing shortage for COVID-19? With us now is Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research at, and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Osterholm, welcome back to CNBC. Uh, I you, guess I should start by uh, asking you to react to what, what Meg just reported on there. This consortium that has developed a test costs $80. Uh, it apparently delivers results very quickly. What do you think? Well, first of all, we need all the testing uh, opportunities that we can get. And so we need to look at uh, ones just like this, but to also understand what is the scalability, not just in terms of how many tests you can do today, but what is your supply chains for all your reagents, for all the things you're using. And we've had many promises over the course of the past several months about how much can be delivered by any one lab, only to find that falter substantially when shortages occurred of the kinds of materials they needed to actually run those tests. Yeah, as you say, it's not merely the ability to have uh, the test, but it's all of the things that work behind it, the, 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 the vials, the, the swabs, and the entire supply chain. So if you were to grade uh, the American testing effort from beginning to where we are now, what grade would you give it, Professor? Well, from a standpoint of a national response, uh, clearly we're down in the F-level range. Uh, our center put out a document uh, several months ago uh, laying out exactly what needed to be done and to, to expand testing to make it more useful. We, we call smart testing to get the most out of every test, and very little of that's actually been enacted. Uh, it's still pretty much a wild, wild west scenario uh, with a few private sector companies really having the 
almost monopoly on testing capacity because their machines are the ones that are in all these clinical labs. Uh, we've seen major challenges with reagents. Uh, we've seen states competing against each other to find testing uh, capacity. And so uh, we just really, I think one of, one of the real lessons that will be learned out of this pandemic, don't do it this way. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that people are so frustrated about is how long it takes to get results back, which really then sort of uh, mitigates, if not eliminates, to my way of thinking, the effectiveness of the test. Can you lay to rest for us once and for all, Dr. Osterholm, the question of whether we have more cases because we test more? Well, we surely are seeing more cases with testing. But remember, we're also uh, just testing a very, very small proportion of the people who actually have infection. We estimate that at least tenfold the number of cases that get reported each day are actually occurring in our community. So when we add a little bit of additional case numbers because of testing, it really is obscured in the sense that uh, the, the vast majority of cases still are not getting tested. I'm gonna ask, uh, so, a, dumb, uh, I'm gonna ask a dumb question here. If we're missing so many people, 10 times the number you just said, yes. is that perversely a good thing because it might suggest that we will sooner get to a point where a larger portion of the population will have, quote, herd immunity. That's hardly a dumb question. It's right on the mark. Uh, in fact, the challenge with that is that only about 8 to 10 percent of the U.S. population has been infected to date, to date. So for all the pain, suffering, death, and economic disruption we've had, it's only 8 to 10 percent. This is true in countries around the world. And so we still have a long ways to go to get to 50 to 70 percent of the population infected. That's why if we look at the number of deaths we have today at 1 point, uh, 160,000, we could easily have a million deaths if we had to realize a herd immunity as a result of uh, additional illnesses. Uh, and that's, that's just unacceptable. How useful is a test, back to a question I asked a moment ago or to a thought I expressed, how useful is a test if I don't get the results for 10 days? It's useless. It's useless. And that's why we uh, talk about smart testing. You have to test the right people at the right time with the right test to get the right result to have the right outcome. And if you lose anything in that chain, you lose the whole uh, importance of that test. So in your case, uh, as you laid out 10 days out, what good is that going to be to the individual who wonders if they have this infection, should they quarantine themselves? How can we use this for contact tracing or to follow up to notify people that they may have been exposed? You can't. So to me, uh, I, that I wouldn't pay a penny for a test like that. Dr. Osterholm, always good to see you. Thank you very much. We hope to, to see you again you. soon. All right, stay well, sir. Thanks, Thank Tom. you. Thank you very much. Apple could be turning up the resistance. Yes, that's that little red knob. Harder to the right, easier to the left on Peloton. Amazon cuts jobs. Dunkin's new breakfast endeavor. My son ordered home delivery from Dunkin' Donuts yesterday. All that and more coming up in today's Rapid Fire. The exchange will be right back. Boy, was my wife mad. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch up on a couple of stories that should be on your radar. Interesting ones all. Time for Rapid Fire. Here with their takes are Seema Modi, Dom Chu, and Diana Olick. Welcome to all of you. First topic, Apple shares all-time highs once again today on a Bloomberg report that it is developing a series of subscription bundles, including video, news, and fitness with virtual classes that could complete, compete with Peloton and Nike. They're expected to launch as early as October, 
alongside the next line of iPhones. Peloton shares dropped on that report initially, but they're up more than a percent now. Diana, uh, you double as our fitness maven and real estate uh, expert. What can you tell us about this, uh, this story of Apple getting into fitness apps, I suppose? Well, I'm not surprised, Tyler, that the shares are back up again today because full disclosure, first of all, I am a Peloton early adopter on the bike and recently got the treadmill. But by the same token, I've also been looking and subscribing at buying DVDs to Beachbody for over a decade, and I still use them both. So when you look about Apple getting into this space, it's a very crowded space. When the pandemic hit, every single major fitness brand went online streaming. I'm talking SoulCycle, Barry's Bootcamp, Solid Core, Core Power Yoga, and still Peloton digital users up 64% in the last quarter annually, and Beachbody subscribers up 200% in May. Now they went from 11 million streams in January to 20 million streams in May. So there are a lot of people using all of these different streaming apps. Apple gets in there. Of course, Apple's a huge name and they're going to have subscribers, but I don't think it hurts Peloton. Is Apple going to come out with a device like the Peloton uh, a bike or is it really just an app? For example, I use my Peloton app to do yoga that is streamed to me on my Apple iPad. Exactly. Now, they don't have equipment. Are they going to come up with some kind of equipment someday? I don't know. But Peloton has the bike. It has the tread. Those are very big selling points. They're also talking about potentially there's some rumors that they'll come out with another piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. That brings people to Peloton. But again, I also use the yoga and the floor stuff off the Peloton app, right. but I also use it from other streaming so, apps, so like Dom, Gaia, I, again, Dom, like in. Beachbody. I, I, all right, so here's the interesting part. When I first saw the headlines of this story, the immediate reaction, guys, is to say to myself, oh, my goodness gracious, there's a huge, massive balance sheet competitor going against Peloton <clears> and Lululemon because they just bought the Mirror product, right? But then I thought to myself, the next layer of that onion to peel back is what if this somehow increases the TAM, the total addressable market for fitness overall. We keep thinking of it as, oh my gosh, Peloton's going to lose to Apple because that one user is going to be there. But I'm saying to myself, if Apple hypothetically gets into this space, into this industry, what does that do? Maybe it opens up fitness to people who weren't actually right. Peloton users before. And if it grows the overall pie, let me that could be big for everybody. Let me give Seema a quick comment on this. I just tried to change my screen name on Peloton to Gin and Pelotonic, but I found that it, is, it has been taken. Very clever, Tyler. I think it's a logical next step for Apple. It brings me back to that iconic interview with Jim Cramer and CEO Tim Cook, where he said, Cook, that one of the largest contributions he hopes Apple will make to the world is in healthcare, and we're seeing that play yep. out in some of its devices, like the watch with the health uh, features that you have on that device. Will they move into the hardware component and actually come out with a fitness device? I think that's the burning question, to your point. All right, how about if you're, if you're uh, not too tired after being on the Peloton, uh, about doing some home improvement work, folks. Those stocks have been hammering away at gains, thanks in part to a remodeling boom and pandemic in my town. The, the signs for redos are all over the place. Sherwin-Williams, Home Depot, Lowe's, 52-week highs yesterday. Huge gains in the past three months, all up more than 20%. Can rising home sales, Diana, keep this trend going? Absolutely. And it's not just rising home sales. It's people staying put and seeing yes. what they need to fix and also building, you know, backyard things and outdoor spaces. We saw some numbers from House last week that showed a 58 percent annual jump in demand for home improvement <clears throat> professionals. No surprise there. And it was pools. It was, you know, back decks. It was screened in porches and it was kitchens, of course, because we spend so much time in the kitchen. There are some red flags, though, on this, though. 
refis are getting more difficult to get and interest rates are rising and that could put a damper on home remodeling as we get into the fall and winter. I have a person who's about to join our extended family who works in the swimming pool business, Dom. He says you can't get a pool installed until next year. There are so many. So, so I've had this problem as well, not because I'm trying to build a pool, but just for general contracting work. There's a couple guys that I like to use reliable around our house and those guys are booked solid for weeks, if not months now. So even if you want to get some work done around the house, unless you're handy enough to do it, the people who are really benefiting from this are people like electricians yes. and plumbers and other contractors. I can't even, I could try to paint my own house. I've done some work before in the past, but I'd rather pay somebody to do it really professionally and have it well done. It's going to take me a few weeks to get somebody in yeah. the house because they're just all booked solid. Yeah. The, the, the contractors, the electricians, the plumbers, they're the guys with the really nice beach houses down on Long Beach Island, let me tell you. All right, then this, Amazon abruptly cutting ties with several small delivery partners, a move that will lead to more than 1,000 layoffs and facility closures. Despite Amazon's boom in deliveries to the due to the pandemic, Dieter Bosa is with us now with the latest details on that. Dieter, take it away. Hey, Tyler, I love dropping in. It sounds a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? Uh, Amazon cutting 1,200 delivery contract jobs, especially when business is booming amid the pandemic. Uh, but here's why. It likely comes down to efficiencies, right? Amazon relies on these delivery service partners, these smaller contractors for last mile delivery to better compete against UPS and FedEx. But if they don't perform Amazon can cut them. So that is likely what happened here, though. Amazon did not give a reason. At the same time, Tyler, you got to note that Amazon is bringing on more than it is cutting. This is a program that DSP program has been growing at a very quick pace over the last few years. Yeah, thanks very much, Deirdre. Stick around. Seema, your reaction here, it, it looks to me as though maybe this is a pruning rather than a real sort of lopping off of limbs. Yeah, exactly, because we know online delivery is such a hot uh, space for Amazon to sort of uh, increase its scale and its position. And I think to Deidre's point, they have a thousands of third-party delivery partners that they work with. So perhaps getting rid of some of the underperformers so they can really optimize the whole experience, especially at a time when Walmart is really doubling down on its same-day delivery channel as well. Deidre, let me ask you a question. When I see those Amazon Prime trucks in my neighborhood, are those owned by Amazon and not by contractors? Do you know? Those are not. That is what I'm talking about, those delivery service partners. So even though they're branded Amazon, those are those contractors. Oh, very interesting. Uh, Dom, you look like you want to jump in. So, so I, I guess when, when I heard this story, you know, Amazon's a headliner here, but I thought of it as a small business story. I mean, Tyler, you and I were both part of the CNBC Small Business Summit just yesterday. Right. One of the things I thought about was many of these DSPs or delivery service partners are actually small businesses in America. They are not necessarily mom and pop, but they're very small in nature, and they've ramped up their hiring and infrastructure spending to accommodate a, a customer as massive as Amazon. In some cases, these delivery service partners have Amazon as the vast majority of their, of their income. So it just teaches you a lesson as a small business owner. Sometimes you can be over levered to a company, and some of these guys are feeling the pain because of it. Deirdre, we're going to say goodbye to you. It was nothing you said. You didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> it's just bye. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. All right, finally, now you can have your coffee and eat it too. Dunkin', maybe my son's favorite store, is teaming with Post, the maker of Raisin Bran, to launch two new coffee-inspired cereals. Uh, flavors include caramel macchiato and mocha latte. Uh, and they even include a small amount of caffeine. They're expected to... That's just what kids need. A little caffeine, a little sugar, 
expected to hit uh, stores later this, this month. The move shouldn't come as much of a surprise for Duncan. Cereal sales were on the decline for years. Now they're up nearly 12% in 20. A cereal is a dinner, uh, Seema, in my home. There are some people who really love breakfast for dinner. I, I hear you, Tyler. Uh, I'm surprised, though, even though cereal sales are up, I thought cereal was dead. What is it about the pandemic that we're now maybe have more time for breakfast, so we're now uh, bringing cereal back? It was, I thought it was all about Greek yogurt and the acai bowl, but clearly uh, <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts sees cereal as one area they want to kind of get into. Diana, you look skeptical there. I'm just kind of grossed out just for a minute. I'll, I'll admit I'm a little grossed out from a health and fitness perspective. Yeah. But look, yeah. we all know that like my favorite cartoon from the pandemic is the person running. It's the it's the wine glass running after the coffee cup, running after the wine glass. And that's how we're all living. You know, you have people working from home. They want caffeine. Is that going to be a seller? Of course it is. I think the cereal <laughs> thing comes back because we can't go out for the fancy breakfast. My daughter every day is whining over her lack of acai bowls, I'll tell you. And she tried making her own and she can't. So, I, I mean, I see it as being popular, but I personally... Dom, have you ever had <laughs> Dunkin's frozen hot chocolate? I have not had the Dunkin' frozen hot chocolate oh, before. Oh, it's good. Here's what I would say. I guess the numbers bear out, right? I mean, by their own admission, Dunkin' says that 90% of U.S. households consume cereal, 65% of adults drink coffee. This seems to be in that Venn diagram, the, the, the place they want to go to. But I would say this, Tyler, the, the, the caffeine content, it's about one-tenth of what's in a cup of coffee. So oh. a, le a little bit of juice, but maybe not enough to send your kid to a 12 <laughs> out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10. I, yeah, I could see moms and parent fathers all around the country going, my goodness, sugar, caffeine, that's what we want. Let's go to the grocery store and have a meltdown. All right, guys, thanks. Appreciate it. Seema, Dom, Diana, all righty. Up next, as the S&P 500 briefly traded above its record closing high, we will get a look at some of the big names making the big moves. And a reminder, you can always catch us uh, on or listen to us live on the go. Anywhere you are, CNBC app. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets right now a little bit sort of in the doldrums, a little bit becalmed. Here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of Smile Direct Club plunging after the company reported a wider-than-expected loss in the second quarter of the year. Smile Direct did beat on revenue, however, and in the release said it is seeing consistently strong demand. The shares are currently trading, as you see, they're down 14% or a buck 35. Vroom! Vroom dropping on a bigger-than-expected loss in its first quarter as a publicly traded company. The online used car seller cited the pandemic, of course, as a key factor in the more than 60% drop in sales from a year earlier. The shares right now, there they are down also 14% or $9.76. Different story for Fossil. Those shares surging after reporting a smaller-than-expected loss and easily exceeding revenue estimates despite pandemic-related store closures. The company said it expects continued growth in its e-commerce channel as well. And there you see Fossil up 13% at $5.26. Still ahead, Citizen, a popular neighborhood safety app, started beta testing a contact tracing feature back in May, and it's about to boost its efforts in the fight against COVID even more. The Citizen CEO, Andrew Frame, will join us to reveal the steps the company is taking. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. The safety app Citizen is launching a new COVID-19 tracing tool 
called SafePass after testing it since May and now adding a new incentive for users. Julia Borston has the details. Hi, Julia. Hi, Tyler. Well, SafePass is designed to be a shareable summary of users' COVID-19 health history. And part of this, it is part of the Citizen app, is designed to help stop the spread of the virus by instantly alerting users if they've been within 10 feet of someone who tested positive for COVID, also offering free at-home testing. Now, users of Citizen are prompted to download a Bluetooth-enabled app called SafeTrace. That will enable the Citizen app to track who they've been near. Users' identity is kept anonymous, but if they've been close to someone who has tested positive for COVID, they're told where the exposure happened and for how long. Then they're asked if they want to get a free at-home saliva COVID test that they can then mail back in for results. Now, Citizen has about 5 million users in the 19 cities that the app operates, but SafePass will be available to anyone, anywhere. It's been tested by 700,000 users since it launched in beta in May, with more than 10,000 COVID test results reported, Tyler. Uh, Julia. And joining it, us now is Citizen Found. Sorry. No, I, I was going to ask you a question, but I'll save it as you, as you welcome the guests, and maybe I'll ask him. Go ahead. Yes, that's right, Tyler. We're joined now by someone who can answer all of our questions, Citizen Founder and CEO Andrew Frame. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us here today. Um, so, Andrew, I understand this app has been um, in, in beta for a while. You've been testing it out. You've had over 700,000 people tested. But my question is now, how are you going to get people to adopt this and to feel comfortable with so many privacy concerns about being tracked everywhere with Bluetooth? Yeah, so first of all, I'd like to cover what it is we're launching today, just so everybody understands what the product is. So SafePass, available today, is a full social system for contact tracing, symptom tracking, and at-home testing provided by Citizen. Now, it's not a free test if you just want to take a test for the sake of taking a test. It's a free test if you've been potentially exposed by the contact tracing network, then you're qualified for a free test. And so the way it works is you tap Safe Pass beginning today. If you don't have Citizen, you download Citizen, you hit Safe Pass, it'll add contact tracing, you enable the Bluetooth, and you are immediately contact tracing. So what this means is while you put this in your pocket and you go about through your everyday life, um, it's keeping track anonymously with all of the people that you're coming in contact or physical proximity with. If one of those people later tests positive, it means you have been potentially exposed. The app will then give you a notification. Yes. Give you a notification. Um, no, I saying, just, um, because we. Okay. Um, we're, we're getting to look at what it looks like now, Andrew, but just give me a sense of how you're going to convince people to download this, especially because Bluetooth means that they're going to be tracked wherever they go. How are you going to address those privacy concerns? Sure. So everything's anonymous. Everything's encrypted, fully secure. Our mission is to keep our users safe, and that means protecting their data. And so the information is deleted permanently after 30 days, all of the contact tracing information. It is no longer useful at that point and permanently deleted. In the meantime, it's all anonymous, secure, and encrypted. Andrew, how, how do I know if I have this app on my phone that I have come in contact with someone who has tested positive? If I'm going through a grocery store, don't they have to have the app? Don't they then have to have put into the app that, yes, I tested positive? Yeah, that's correct. So we, 
through our test, we reached three and a half percent of the population of LA with very little effort. In order for contact tracing to be successful, um, depending on the uh, data scientist or epidemiologist you're speaking to, it's anywhere between 60 and 80 percent of the population. So contact tracing has been a huge missing component of uh, the national response here in the U.S. And maybe we can get it to critical mass alone. Maybe we need to partner with other contact tracing systems as they emerge. But critical mass will be reached on a cumulative basis, not by any one system. And we are very willing to open up partnership discussions. Now, Andrew, I think it's really important to note here that you're not generating any revenue from this. You don't generate revenue from Citizen, and you're going to be giving away these tests to people if if your app alerts them that they've been exposed to COVID. Um, So you're making a really big investment in this. How does that all fit into your long-term business strategy for Citizen and also for SafePass? Yeah, so we are, our, our, our two goals are to grow and to monetize. This particular thing is completely on mission and there's an urgent need for us and it does grow our network. And so this is a no-brainer for us to use and leverage our safety network, which is number one in the U.S., and turn it into a contact tracing system for those users that opt in. So beginning Monday, we are the official contact tracing app for Stockton, and we will be doing uh, a full contact tracing solution for Stockton. And that is the area that we are hoping to achieve critical mass and make Stockton the most uh, successful COVID area in the country, and then use that as a blueprint to bring it to the rest of the U.S. Well, great, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. We are out of time, but we look forward to seeing how this grows and and helps address this big issue. Really appreciate it. Tyler, back over to you. Julia, thanks very much. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.